Hi, welcome back to In The Pink. This week, the podcast is very different. This week, it's in response to the death of a great friend of ours, Caroline Flack. I still can't believe those words when I say them, but it is true, it has happened. And we're all trying to deal with it in our various ways. And I wanted to tell you about a lady that I've reconnected with in the last couple of weeks who's really helped me, called Julia Samuel. And she is a bereavement counsellor. And she's a friend of a friend. And she's incredible. Amazing woman. And I asked her whether she would mind if I recorded some of the advice that she's given me in the wake of Caroline's passing and she agreed and we've basically talked in quite general terms about coping with death. Whenever we've kind of come back to specifics on Caroline we've kind of steered away from those because it just feels wrong, uncomfortable. But I really hope the advice that she gives will help others. Sadly, all of us at some point in our lives are going to have to deal with death. And she is just a wonderful human being. So here's our chat. And uh, I hope it helps you. I hope it helps anyone. Um, It's helped me. And I um, certainly don't want to benefit in any way financially or otherwise from this podcast because it's deeply personal and I certainly don't want to be I don't know I mean it just makes me feel very uncomfortable even in any way trading on Caroline and so uh, we've stripped the the sponsor bumpers out of this and the adverts and it's just a conversation about grief now, look, obviously, it um, is quite heavy. I should warn you, we talk about quite raw emotion. And um, if any of you find it too much or need to talk to somebody else after listening to it, then please um, do call the Samaritans on 116-123. Um, message me as well. Um, hopefully, I can get through them all. I mean, I've really been overwhelmed with the kindness social media has got a lot to answer for but it can also be an incredibly positive place i i've been off it for the last couple of weeks but i've just come on today and read loads of messages from you guys which are just so lovely um so thank you and um look i really hope that that this is seen as it's intended which is just to be helpful and positive and hopefully kind, as we're all reminding each other to be um, in these tragic circumstances. So so here is Julia Samuel, and um, yes, do let me know what you think. Thank you. Well, thank you for your time, Julia. It's, um, it's a strange one, because I'm sure that there's lots of people who don't ever want to meet you. They don't ever want to be in the position that they have to meet you. And yet your aura and energy is something that I think so many people could benefit from, even if they haven't lost somebody close to them. Uh, Do you find that you have to in some ways, um, well, do you find it frustrating in any ways that people resist seeing you? Do people resist seeing you? Yes, I mean, one of the most... Yes, yeah, so to comment on your first remark is that a lot of people see me who are part of a club they never ever want to be a member of. Mm. So they never want to be walking through my door and needing to see me because someone they love has died. And so they're already kind of in a position of being forced to face a reality that they don't want to be true, that they don't want to face they want to have a kind of magical thinking that this hasn't happened Um, and one of the 
most difficult tasks of mourning is facing the reality of the death that this person that you love that you will always love has died and how do you find a way of living and loving again given that this central person of your life has died and so our instinct is not to come and not to talk about it not to see a psychotherapist like me and not to deal with the pain so people tend to try and block the pain of grief and what people do to block the pain is often what does them harm in the long term because unfortunately the way that we're made how we heal in grief is by allowing ourselves to feel the pain and finding both ways to express it and it may not be through talking it may be by writing a journal it may be gardening it may be lots of different ways that we can express it, it maybe through music but also the key is finding both finding a way to express your pain but also finding the support to support you through it so the biggest predictor of outcomes of being okay after the death of someone you love isn't the circumstances of the death it isn't the relationship with the person that died it is the love and support that you get at the time and after the death um, and that is the sort of defining factor and part of that is getting the support that you need and that may be talking to a therapist it may be talking to really good friends I suppose some people feel I don't need it I'm strong enough to cope others feel as you touched on that it's an acknowledgement that it's happened and that you know in some way if I don't talk to anyone I can deny that's happened and I can live in this strange bubble but <clears throat> as I suppose you've suggested that can lead to a kind of pressure cooker situation um, what would you say to people because I suppose you can't persuade somebody to speak to someone no I mean I you know so although it is the love and connection that makes a difference the circumstances makes an enormous difference so um, I don't there isn't a hierarchy in grief but there's grief that is more complex and more kind of intense than other grief so sudden and unexpected death so a death by suicide by an accident by murder um, that is like normal grief with the volume turned up so you have all the feelings of anger guilt rage loss sadness despair desolation but they're intensified and I in a way I'm not I wouldn't suggest that people have to see someone. In a way, my message is that the more we um, talk about death and the more we talk about the natural process of grieving, then there will be a kind of compassion and understanding that what we're doing is normal. Because it isn't talked about, there's still a taboo around death and there's a particular taboo around suicide, is that we're very ignorant. And when we're ignorant, we're scared. And when we're scared, we want to kind of turn our face to the wall and not look at it because it's too frightening. And so my hope, you know, through the talks I do in Grief Works is that we should talk as much about death as we do about birth. I'm not saying like every day face it, but that we shouldn't, there's this sort of magical thinking, if I don't talk about it, if I don't think about it, it's not going to happen to me. It happens to other people. But I think if we find an understanding of it, and also we discover through discussion what actually helps us, that pain doesn't kill us, that if we find ways of expressing our grief and if we find the love and connection to others to support us through it, we do find a way of living and loving again and moving forward. People say, you don't get over loss and that's true um, and you don't get better from it but that you you live a, a, a new version of yourself um, the new me and my new future and that's that process is a long process it's a painful process and it's a, a moving in and out so it's allowing the waves of loss to come through your body and they come in lots of different forms. They may come in rage, they may come in sadness, 
but it's supporting yourself to let the process come through your system. And as you do that, you incrementally adjust to this new reality because the pain forces you to that the person you love has died. And that in a way releases you to be a bit more in the present. So, yeah. It's um, so interesting because I was even a bit nervous about coming here and, and not just because of facing up to um, what I'm feeling about Caroline dying, but also about losing somebody else close to me because I, I am scared of talking about death. I like, I it's the one thing that freaks me out over anything. It's this thing I'm most scared of. And I would do, I wouldn't say I'm scared of anything else in life other than death and not my own death, but those of people close to me. And so even just coming here and seeing you, and I love being around you, your energy is incredible. Um, I remember being introduced by a mutual friend who said, she's quite possibly the loveliest person I've ever met. And I think I kind of, I go along with his theory and that's good. But um, so, so how do we kind of achieve a kind of grander shift, if you like, on a, on a macro level of, of making it okay to talk about and not finding it a depressing subject? You know, even when I told my husband I was coming to see you, he went, oh, oh. bloody hell, that'll be a bit depressing, won't it? I said, well, actually, I don't, I don't think so. I think it, I'm hoping it will be helpful to anyone who's listening to this. But you know, it's not a light, cheery subject, and, and no. you and you live it. I mean, this is I your do. life. I do. I think. I mean, I you know, I believe in the wisdom of everybody knowing themselves, and so I would never try and somebody for, for to force themselves to do something that instinctively doesn't feel right. Um, but at the same time, I think when people realize that they are stronger than they trust, that they can allow themselves to feel feelings that frighten them, um, when they, that what we imagine is often worse than the reality because our imagination is limitless. So probably when you were scared of death, it's because you have no concrete information or knowledge to hold on to and you just um, you just think of it and it becomes this kind of scary horrific like horror film blur whereas actually if you'd seen a dead body if you'd talked to someone about death if you'd um, kind of read things about it you'd have more information and that would ground you and give you a kind of steadiness to not be so frightened of mm. it ignorance is mm. is much more frightening than the truth mm. whatever the truth is however difficult the truth is it's better than a lie and it's better than our imagination so with that in mind and by the way you're right and i've seen one dead body i saw my grandfather's and i actually found it very calming yeah. to be with him my husband's reaction to seeing his grandfather's dead body was that he wished he hadn't because he saw this lifeless thing that wasn't actually his grand grandfather I was able to then park that in a way and remember grandpa full of laughter and love and everything else. That that wasn't the lasting image I had, but I found it a quite nice kind of peaceful way of saying goodbye. So I think, again, it's it's so personal, it's isn't it? Um, what are the steps following the shock, as you say, of something like a brutal, like an accident or suicide or murder? What are the things that people should or can do that help? I mean, I think the, I mean, the, say if we talk about suicide, um, it's recognizing that everything that they feel as abnormal as it feels is normal. Because often they feel so overwhelmed by the, the different feelings that they have that they, kind of feel like they're going mad and grief can feel like you're going mad. And also the feelings can be very, they can compete. So you can feel guilty and blame yourself. You can feel furious with the person that's taken their own life. You can feel a longing to see them. You can feel a, a sort of desperation to escape this whole thing that you don't want it to be true. And though all of those different feelings compete in your system and kind of drive you crazy. and. I guess what I suggest to people is that you allow space for all of them, that one feeling doesn't knock out another. 
and there's this um, battle between your head and your heart. So with feeling guilty when someone dies by suicide, guilt is always a painful companion of grief. It is even more so with suicide, is that your head knows that you didn't have control. This wasn't your fault and there was nothing you could do, but your heart feels guilty. And the two can go into this kind of permanent, you know, absolutely extreme battle with each other, trying to knock each other out. And actually what I get people to do is allow both. I don't try and argue the, the toss that they shouldn't feel guilty, but allow them to express how they feel about the guilt, allow them to express what they think and hold both. And then over time, our, our, our systems are amazingly adaptive. We're born to adapt and evolve. So if we give ourselves the space and the time, we do adapt. But what we tend to do is we want it to be quick. Mm. We want it to be over. Um, and so, uh, but then that doesn't allow, our, our systems take much longer to catch up than the events. So the other big thing um, when there's a sudden death is to give yourselves time. Because again, there's this urgency to have something that you can do that gives you a sense of agency. But actually you need time to um, give yourself the chance to see the body, if that is something that different family members want to do that you have time to think about the funeral really carefully because there's this short window between the death and the funeral that you can never go back and put that right. So, you know, what would the person wear in their coffin? Who's going to speak at the funeral? Are we going to put messages or mementos in the coffin? Who's going to be at the funeral? What is going to be said at the funeral? All of those things support you and can console you if you've given yourself the time then afterwards because it's your last one of your last acts for the person that you love and you really want to feel because the love never dies so you always love the person that's died and, and in some ways you love them even more intensely so you feel incredibly protective of them and the body can you know I've had clients talk about I thought about my sister when she died and I wondered if she was cold you know I wanted to mm. I wanted to put socks on to keep her warm so that feeling of love and protection is very much alive, although they've died, so that you want to have asked every question you can ask and come to the best answers given who you are, given the circumstances, and that they've, you've given yourself time to know that even if you see it differently a year later, you know that you did the best that you could because regrets are crazy making. And the thing about suicide is that there are so many unanswered questions um, that can give rise to so many regrets. So don't rush the decision process into the funeral, because I think a lot of people do feel pressure. And that's the next question that everybody asks. When's the funeral? What's going to happen? And do you think the family feel an undue amount of pressure with that? Do they say, you know, back off, we need to make the right decisions here, not rushed ones? Yeah, and, and I, th I think the pressure comes from people want something concrete mm. because death is invisible the feet you know the the act is visible the, the person that has died is visible but everything that you feel is invisible it's below the kind of waterline if you like and so people want something tangible that they feel they can have power over that they can have agency over that they can kind of hold on to um and so that is the it is that is why but then a lot of people also say that, well, the funeral can help, but they, you channel so much into the funeral that then after it, you're kind of free falling again and everybody seems to go back to their lives. And suddenly you don't have anything else to focus on or have control of because you obviously lacked control of the death. The funeral is the one thing. So uh, you know, it's complicated. It is, isn't it? It's so with all grief and particularly with suicide, there isn't a kind of end point. So it's a, um, it's a complex process that there are different gates that you go through. You know, there's a, the, the time that you hear the news, there's the weeks leading up to the funeral, and any pre-existing fault line in a family system or a friendship system, when there's a complex death, those fault lines intensify. Right. So if you were a family that were not good at communicating openly and honestly and with love, 
that will be even more so. If you're a friendship group that were very competing, you know, couldn't really listen to each other, that will intensify. So, um, and also everybody gr grieves differently. And as human beings, we want everyone to be the same as us. So we can be very critical. Like one person may be so shocked, they don't cry at all and actually go back to work because in that frozen state, they'd rather do something than nothing. Somebody else might be in a kind of puddle of tears and not be able to move. And then there's everything in between. And actually there isn't a right or wrong way to grieve, but there is a right or wrong way to be with each other is that the key in all of this is, is communication. And the secret of good communication is listening to each other. So people can have competing voices of wanting to be heard because they want to have the power because they were so powerless over the circumstances of a death and missing the person. And also people feel they have a, there's a hierarchy. What's legitimate is, does the mother of the person, the father, the parents, do they have legitimacy for decision-making? Is it the partner? Is it the best friends? And there can be a kind of competing push. Like this is, everyone feels protective of the person. They feel protective of her memory. They feel protective of how she's talked about. They kind of long to make everything okay for her or him. Um, and the key in that is to al allow honesty and trust and kind of truthful communication with everybody that everybody has, can be heard. And ultimately, there probably are only two or three people who make the decisions in the end. Um, but if people feel heard and um, uh, kind of valued for what they say, they can live with whether the decision is what um, they would have gone along with. If they feel pushed out and closed off, then their grief is intensified because not only do they not have a voice, but their voice is diminished and not heard. Mm. It's incredibly complicated. It really is, isn't it? And I suppose there's no right or wrong way. It's, again, everyone's going on their own journey through this. And if those journeys collide, it can be catastrophic again. The impact is kind of rolling. Um, I want to... So talking that, that's where I think information and a podcast like this, I hope, mm. would help because people don't realise mm. that what they're doing. They, they're just instinctively doing what they've always done. They def go to their default way of coping. So when you're an extremist, whatever your default mode of coping comes up. But if you kind of have... In an, what way? So if you're someone who shuts down, you shut down. If you're yeah. someone who gets furious, you'll get furious. If you someone who pushes everybody away, you'll push them away or more so. Right. Just amplified. It's amplified. Right. Because when we're extremists, we go to our kind of revert yeah. self where you feel safe and people kind of shrink to themselves. But if they have even the knowledge in their head that my first response isn't necessarily the best response for me or the memory of the person that's died or for the family system, then that gives them a bit of space between what they feel and what they do. And that's what you want. You want those nanoseconds of when you're wanting to shout at someone, fuck off, yeah. when you think, actually, no, breathe, halt, take a, a break, and then think about actually what's the best thing for the whole situation and the whole family. Because, mm. you know, it is incredible the different reactions that people have. Um, one friend is all about helping everyone else. You know, very much, she's very much been about how are you? How, are you? how are you coping? What can I do to help you? And I'm thinking, bloody hell, how are you coping? You know, but maybe that is her way of coping, is to nurture yeah. and and look up, you know, which is an incredible trait. Um, but, maybe, but as long as she doesn't ignore her that's what full I'm, time. Yeah. Yeah. So in the beginning, we don't always have a choice. I mean, but as long as at some point she deals with her own feelings and yeah. her own loss and finds ways to support herself that you know it's a long old haul grief yeah so you know as you said there's 
the time leading up to the funeral and then after it tends to be six to three months that the family are kind of left people get on with their lives they get busy and the family left and and the thing that helps them is the love and connection to others as i keep saying but so if you are a good friend to a particular family kind of show up for the long haul and the things that you do so the grief that is invisible and the powerlessness is invisible, but you can tangibly do stuff that makes a difference. So you can turn up with food. People get fed up with lasagna in the freezer, but actually it's really nice that you've got it. The, one of the big things, because grief feels like fear, it can even feel like terror when it's really kind of sudden and unexpected. The thing that winds your system down is exercise. So show up and take the person your friend for a walk. Take them for walking and talking, walking companionably, not eyeballing each other, moving your system, listening to each other, having times when you look at the ground and you don't talk is incredibly healing and incredibly cathartic. Offer to book them a massage. If they've got kids, take the children off their hands. So do practical things as well as knowing that you can't fix it, acknowledge the loss. So when people come up with expressions like, I know how you feel, or, you know, there's so many, I can't, my, I get so cross about them, my mind has gone blank. What helps is acknowledgement, that acknowledge how bad it is, and then listen, mm. listen to the person. And do you think there are just stock phrases that people trot out because they feel like they should, they don't actually think about what they're saying, and in the way that makes it worse? I think... Death scares people, mm. so they want something. They either move away from it. So often, that is really true that people run from you down the sort of supermarket aisle or cross the street from you, which makes your sense of isolation and being part of this dead person's club fifty times worse. Or they say the trot phrases because they're frightened of getting it wrong. Mm. And really, all you have to do is be kind and acknowledge it. So um, you touched on exercise then, because I remember you said to me before about, um, you know, obviously we, we, we've talked about the fact that the journey after losing somebody is very personal, but there are, equally there are patterns of behaviour. And I remember <clears throat> talking to you before I went out to testing in Barcelona, which didn't last very long, I was only there a day. But I went because I felt a pressure to go, not from my employers, not from my family, not from my friends, but from myself. I felt like I have to go, this is my job, this is what I need to do, and this will make me feel better because I'll focus my mind. But actually when I got there, I felt worse because I felt away from the people I love, I felt away from my network of friends. I craved smelling and touching my kids, kissing my children. And um, whilst everybody in the paddock was lovely and I, nobody I couldn't really talk on any real level with anyone because nobody else knew her in the same way but equally I I don't know I felt in some ways indulge, self-indulgent talking about it I felt like come on just pull yourself together and um can you just tell our listeners the sort of the, the what you told me about the, the six weeks of trauma and then the possible onset of PTSD and the things that you can do in the early stages, like exercise. But anyway, over to you. I'm not going to take the words out of your mouth, but I found it incredibly helpful. So in the first shock, you can feel numb, and but also the grief feels like a physical wound. And when I talk about this process of the wave hitting you, it's the move between loss orientation, where you grieve and emote and face the reality of the loss, and an oscillation to restoration being um, orientation, where you are okay, you have hope for the future, you move forward. And as human beings, we instinctively do both. We move between loss and restoration, and we need to create environments that allow us to do both, so that um, you have times where you grieve and cry or write a journal or write to the person that you love, write them a letter, remember them. So how we heal in grief is feeling the pain, but also continuing bonds that we have touchstones to their memory. We have find ways of remembering them, but also giving ourselves opportunities to engage with life, to go back to work, to be distracted, 
to feel our sense of potency and that we're good at this. This is who I am. I'm this is I'm a presenter. I can do this job because that supports you when you have to go back and do the lost work. Mm. And I guess it empowers you in a way, doesn't it? And because I definitely have swung between feeling, oh fuck it, what's the point of anything? And then thinking, no, if anything, I need to live every single minute of my life and push myself harder than I ever have as a mum, as a, you know, professional, as a wife, as everything that matters to me in my life. I've got to be a better version of that and work harder and try harder. I mean, death, there's nothing like death to remind you of the importance of living. But to go back, so that's the sort of context of what you and I talked about. And um, a traumatic death you feel the trauma in your body. So our mind and body are completely interconnected. They're not kind of opposite systems. So every thought that you have has a physiological component and every feeling that you have gives you a thought. So when you have a sudden death, it sends your bodily system into fight, flight or freeze because your body goes on alert, you become vigilant. And because it's the shock of it, and it's an a evolutionary early wired system that we would, you know, attack a predator, run away or freeze if they don't think we're alive. But it's in us today and it comes when we, when someone dies like that, it feels like a threat to our whole system. It feels a threat to our mortality. It feels a threat of mortality to everyone that we love. And if someone I love can die that suddenly, then suddenly anyone can die. So everything feels... Um, intensified. That's so true because I definitely felt edgier about leaving my children even for a couple of hours. I still do even just taking them to school and nursery it feels a tense experience at the moment. Yeah so you're, at the moment your body is on alert so it's in fight or flight mm. and you you may have kind of flashbacks of Caroline, you may have bursts of jagged pain and trauma is when a memory or experience isn't processed into the sort of library, the memory part of your brain. So your thinking part, the neofrontal cortex, goes offline. So you're kind of very uh, vigilant, scared, intense, looking, frightened. And also you, you can't take in other people's feelings. So you may be able to take in a hug. But in order, when we feel loved, to really let someone love us, we have to kind of feel calm. You know, the best sex isn't when you're trying hard. I know it's weird to talk about that, but is when you feel trusting and open and relaxed and at peace. So in the same way, when you're vigilant, um, when you're traumatized, you can't take in good stuff. Mm -hmm. And then you can have a kind of washing machine of words going around your head that heighten it all the time. And it's normal to feel trauma when there is a sudden unexpected death. But that doesn't mean that it's PTSD. The kind of measure, the DSM-4 measure of post-traumatic stress disorder is if you still have flashing images, you still have a trouble sleeping, you still have high bursts of anxiety, you still can't concentrate, all of that six to eight weeks after the death. Um, the things that help with um, trauma are things that wind your system down, that tell you that you're safe. If that makes, so it's the opposite of when your system has gone on overdrive. So your instinct to be with your kids and smell them and hold them and hug them and kind of be cosy at home with a rug on you on the sofa and watch a cartoon, that's a very healthy, good instinct because there you feel safe, you feel connected, you're with your tribe, you're home. So that will wind your system down eating good food. People tend to kind of drink a lot, have a lot of coffee, talk very fast, wind each other up. The opposite helps. I'm not saying never drink or have coffee, but doing anything that lowers your whole autonomic nervous system, your whole bodily system. And probably the fastest track um, winder downer is exercise because it tells your body you've flown. So I don't have a single client that walks through my door that I don't tell them. Whatever their reason for seeing me is regular exercise is the equivalent to a low dose of antidepressants. And in trauma, get your heart rate up, be in nature, go outside, move your body around. And you will, 
even however bad you feel, you will always feel better. The kind of worst thing is to stay inside, look at your computer, do masses of social media, because that romp, you feel disconnected. It romps up the images in your head. You don't move your body, and so you feel worse. And then it sets up that terrible negative cycle. And then that can tip over into PTSD. That's so interesting because um, definitely um, the irony of it all, the, 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 the role social media has played in all of this, and there's, there's reignited this massive debate, is that I keep looking at Instagram. I, I, I don't feel like I can or should post anything, but I keep looking at it, maybe because I'm looking for answers or something, or I just want to see her face. But the problem is every time I look at it, it give, offers me more of Caroline because it's obviously the algorithms are telling me, oh, that's what she wants to look at. I'm going to give her more. So now when I open Instagram, that's all I see. Just hundreds and hundreds of images of Caroline. And it's, it's weird because on the one hand, it's comforting and I'm drawn into it more. Because you're looking for her. I'm looking for her. You want to connect to her. Yeah. And, and then other times I'm going, oh my God, this is overwhelming. This is all too much. It's, 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 it's so confusing. It's so confusing. And, and I, I, you know, initially, um, I think it just, you know, made my head spin out of control was that on the private level, you know, we've lost a friend, but it was so public and it was just everywhere. I mean, fuck, it was everywhere. It's literally every, I was coming through the airport and it was, you know, on the ticker, on the newsfeed, Caroline Flack death. And I couldn't, put those three words together, I was like, oh my God, this is like some horrific dream I can't wake up from. like you're holding your head like it's coming out of a crash that something was thrown on your head. Yeah, that's that's how it feels, it is. And and then I would speak to people who would, you know, because I I remember telling my mum, and she screamed. My mum is like the calmest, strongest person I know. And it was just this, like this sort of, visceral yes and it was like it wasn't my mum for for a few minutes and I then primitive response yes and then I was hugging my mum to comfort her which I wasn't expecting because she's so nurturing of me but then what I found is that strangers have come up to me and it seems to have affected so many people and I suppose that's partly because lots of people even if they'd never met her, felt like they knew her. But also I feel that it's hit such a raw nerve of society because it's basically flagged up everything that's fucked up about our society. And it scares us because we're looking into this black mirror. No, the most uncomfortable thing for you is missing Caroline and the kind of the friend that you had and the friend that you loved. But the thing that is crazy making for you is trying to make sense of everybody else's reaction and all these questions about social media. And I think when someone dies, one of the things we want is answers and we want to make sense of things and we want to have answers. Suicide is is particularly difficult because there are so many unanswered questions, but also, as you're saying, it's reflecting our unanswered questions about what are we doing in society today? What is this world that we're all hooked into, that we're all in some way addicted to? And is it really doing harm and is it killing? And what can we do to change it? It certainly makes me scared as a mother. Yeah, and very, and very kind of protective. And, you know, that I could talk for hours about lots of different aspects of that, of the public death and the private death. But one of the things I was thinking about when someone famous dies, Caroline in this case, but many people, but also suicide is often becomes a public, um, goes into the public domain. Well, even if it's somebody who isn't in the public domain? No, because newspapers like, they like drama and stories. But I was thinking about, you know, our core sense of ourself is identity. And that there are there are foundations of our, our self-esteem, that we are worthy of love and that we have confidence in who we are and we're allowed to be who we are. And there are many aspects of it. You know, there's your identity as 
your race, your status, your marital, your part, whether you're a partner, whether you're a mother, or lot of what you do for your work. So there's masses of it's complex identity. But at the heart of identity is the need to be loved and to belong. And when you look at evolutionary science around identity, evolutionarily, we needed to stand out and be different in order to attract a mate. But also, in a way, in a competing evolutionary way, we needed to belong to a tribe because in the savannah plains of Africa, if you didn't belong to your tribe, you were more likely to die. So you were under threat. So being outside a tribe, being exiled by your tribe, feels like you can die. And it feels to me now with social media that we put a version of our identity out into the wild west of social media, wanting to be different, wanting to love and belong, but actually having no control of what people's reaction are to us and feeling under threat. So, and that with someone who's well known. So I think everybody has a version of that. When you have hundreds of thousands of followers and hundreds of thousands of reactions and subjective reactions, then it totally does your head in about who am I? Am I love for me? What does that mean? Where do I belong? Why am I lovable? And it can scramble this core sense of a human being um, that we need to have in order to navigate through the complexity and difficulty of life is that we have to believe that we are worthy of love and that we belong. Mm. So what's Does the, that make it sense? It totally makes sense. But I just don't know what the answer is. I mean, short of social media shutting down altogether, I mean, you know, maybe there will be a massive backlash. I, I fear there won't. I mean, I pray that there will be changes made and a legacy, but, you know... But what would the changes be? That's the thing, you know. Hashtags come and go. I'm not sure that... Look, I don't, I, I don't know what the answers are, but I, I need to find them in order to protect my children. And I'm sure there's plenty of parents out there that feel the same. I'm sure there's lots of people out there that feel the same about protecting themselves. But I'm not, I'm not sure what the it feels like. Pandora's box has opened. Yeah, I think Pandora's box is open, but I, and I think people understand the risks, but the longing to be seen and the longing to be like is greater. Well, it just taps into such a base part of our human, human psyche, psyche, doesn't it? But I think when people really take responsibility, this thing about I'm saying about being exiled from the tribe and that, you know, what damage that can do to you, that you take personal responsibility for that. Mm. What you need is you can have an external version of yourself that's on social media, but that you don't give it so much of your emotional investment. Like an alter ego. Like an alter ego. So that is my public Beyonce talks about on stage and she's able to separate the two but that you have a lot of sources Mm. of feeling who you are, how you are, everything, every part of you is valued for who you are with the people that are close to you and that that is your tribe. The the outside bit is your work life maybe or your kind of public tribe, which you don't invest so much in. Mm. But I think if you have strong roots and strong foundations like you with your husband, your kids, your best friends, and that's where you invest your real sense of identity, you're much more robust and you're much more resilient when you get slings and arrows thrown at you. I think people who are most vulnerable are people who don't have a tribe in their life that they really trust, that really value them, um, because then their need for external affirmation on social media is greater and then it sets up that cycle. I'm reluctant to talk about Caroline specifically because I don't want this to be in any way, you know, well, this is the point I'm getting at is that... The private and the public. The, yeah, is, is, is where that line is drawn. I, what I want this to do is for people to be able to take something away, whether it's about Caroline for them or about their own personal circumstance that, that yeah, will yeah. help them. But one thing I found quite interesting is that, you know, and alarming really is certain reactions to people that have expressed themselves publicly about Caroline. I'm, I'm thinking um, what I felt Danny Cipriani did, and I don't know if you saw it, but he did this amazing, amazingly brave um, piece to camera um, about how he'd contemplated suicide and how he felt that he wanted to rid 
um, the sort of shame of it all and the judgment of all. So he he wanted to make an honesty call and he wanted to talk openly about it. He in turn has been judged for in some way exploiting Caroline's memory by making it about him, making it about him which, you know, for me, that's the last thing she would have wanted because she never judged anyone on anything. I think that really was... One of her so, great gifts. Honestly, such an incredible trait. She just didn't ever... And it isn't what she received, so she got judged. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So she was confused and crushed and crippled by that because she's like, well, why, why would they judge me? I'm not... Judging I don't her. get it. She couldn't... No, she couldn't understand. Understand that, that, you know, that approach in life. And therefore, I don't think she would... You know, I think, if anything, she would... And hopefully she knows this outpouring of love just comes from everyone's very personal response to it. And that's their way of coping. That's Danny's way of coping. And that's and if one person has been helped by him voicing yeah. that, then that's a great thing. And surely. protects them from taking their own life. You know, I mean, people's re- you can't really make sense of different people's reactions in the way that they take their own fury out on other people um, publicly when it would serve them much better to understand. You know, an expression of fury comes from the expression of hurt, like, ow, I'm hurting, stop hurting me. And if they could understand what was hurting them and find a way of voicing it that helped them improve their own life, they would feel more, you know, confident and they wouldn't need to attack others, is the simplistic view. The other thing for people listening that I thought might be helpful is around suicide, this question of um, two two things. One is that, you know, people ask why, why did they kill themselves? And that you can never have a kind of confident answer because we can never know fully why people do it. One of the ways um, to think about it, though, that I think is helpful is that it's like a heart attack of the brain that you know, any young person, a 20-year-old, a 40-year-old, a 50-year-old, can suddenly, unexpected, out of the blue, be walking down the street and have a heart attack where the the um, electricity in the heart kind of explodes and, they, and it kills them in that moment. And I think a way of thinking about suicide, it's never, in some ways, I don't think it's ever a choice, like a logical choice. I think, because I've worked with many people who have been suicidal, and at the time they want they have suicidal ideation, it's like they are completely disconnected from anyone that's close to them, and they have this kind of um, uh, crazy electricity in their brain that's telling them everyone's better without me. There's no point in living. I have no future. Where the the system of wires and connections and neural pathways in your brain completely explodes. And it's at that point that you take your own life. Mm. And so it doesn't give you an answer, but I think it can help you in the way of thinking about it. That and is helpful in a way, isn't it? When you feel that it's less of a decision and more of a, an out, well, I don't know what I'm trying to say. A massive, disconnect yeah. a massive electric fault it's a sort of massive fault what about in the, your brain what about the the theory that says it is their last chance to exert control over a situation they feel out of control of is there truth to that do you think i mean none of us can know i mean it certainly feels like that doesn't mm. it that if you feel under attack and you feel you have no choices in what's ahead of you and that people are imposing things on you this is your kind of massive attack back Mm. um but i i I think it's much more likely that you you're not thinking clearly what do you sorry and i think the other part around suicide is the expression committed suicide which brings with it the sort of stigma and shame of suicide and i think that comes from hundreds of years of the church um it's like committing a sin so if you died by suicide up to about 50 years ago, you couldn't be buried in consecrated ground. Your whole family was excommunicated from the village or where you lived, that it was a sort of blemish on the family, the survivors of suicide, and that you did wrong by God. 
And I think we've inherited the feeling of that without fully understanding where it's come from. Um, and of course, it is an unnatural death, so mm. that is true. And what do you say to those who say, well, it's a selfish act? I think that's incredibly unhelpful. Um, I mean, all our feelings around suicide are very complicated. We could be furious with the person that's, that's killed themselves. We can kind of want to shake them and wake them up. We can want to shout at them, you know, emotionally, like, you're being so selfish. How could you do this to me? Why have you done this to me? Children I've worked with whose parents have died by suicide, you know, they say, everyone tells me my dad loved me, but it doesn't feel like it. So there's this terrible conflation of feeling and fact, where the feeling becomes the fact. Um, and that is very confusing. And, you know, it's very hard to unpick. Mm, that really is. How are Sorry. <laughs> no, it's not. No. I mean, you know, part of a process, isn't it? Um, I don't know how you cope doing this day in, day out. I, I talked to my mum, actually, because she she works um, in child welfare. And I say to her, bloody hell, how do you get up every morning and talk about, you know, children that have been physically, sexually abused? Like, I mean, it's just the most heinous world. And she explains it that... Um, well, that she, you know, she 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 compartmentalizes compartmentalizes some ways, but also she she says, you know, I have to remind myself that it's another day in court for me. But this is the whole world to that one person, so I have to raise my game every day. But it must be exhausting. I mean, is it is it emotionally tiring for you as a person, or do you do you gain strength from the help that you give? I mean, I I've done it for thirty years, so. Um, I'm of course I wouldn't be any good if I didn't care and if you care you're affected so I kind of feel it and I have thousands of stories in my head so you know when my children have a, a headache I do think it's a brain tumour or so I mean it, my perception of the safety of life is definitely more on the bad end and and I have to kind of talk myself down to the more hopeful positive end but on the other side of that you know, I have no qualities, more qualities than anybody else. The thing I'm good at is listening. And um, I get a lot by the connection. So being with you today, talking about this incredibly difficult and painful and complex um, way of dying. I get something from being close to you. I get something from it being very truthful, from being very honest. Um, and that does something for me that way outweighs any kind of cost to me, that I, I, I get a lot from being connected to other people. Mm. And I'm really lucky I've found something I love doing that I can do. But I think we all have that capacity. I honestly, you know, if you, if you talk to my children, you know, they know I am by no means this perfect person. <laughs> and, you know, I am no better than the next one. And, but we, and we all have a capacity to connect them and, and listen, I think is the key. The thing I'm very aware of at the moment that there's so much loud transmitting and so much kind of shouting, the more people aren't listened to, the more everyone shouts. And I think if we could tone that down and do a lot more listening, I think that would help us all a lot. Are you worried about the fate of particularly sort of younger generations coming through? I am worried. I mean, I think lots of things. I work with a lot of millennials. Um, and I talk about it a lot in my new book, actually. I think they're much more emotionally intelligent than, say, my generation. Um, I think in some ways they know much more about what can help them and what can hinder them for their mental health. And I do think our pract practices and understanding around social media and all of that will change and improve, that will kind of develop a set of guidelines and rules that we know is what will keep us kind of on the right side of the boundary um, rather than kind of in the black hole that you talked about. Mm. So I'm quite hopeful. And we all Good. need hope. We, that is the key. Damn right we do. So what can, um, by the way, can I just say that this, uh, this hasn't been depressing to me and I'm going to make sure that my husband knows that and listens that he listens to all my podcasts. But um, 
it's, you know, it has felt very therapeutic. So thank you. I'm really pleased. No, I, I, yeah, anyway, I really mean that. I mean, there's something that physiologically happens when you voice what you most fear. It's in our system mm. that when we let it go round and round in our head and we won't look at it, it intensifies and it gets bigger. But when we dare, in connection with someone that we trust, look at things, your whole body releases yeah. and you feel a bit safer and you trust yourself a bit more. And then as you do that, it allows you to adjust to this new reality, to this new landscape that you didn't want. Um, That's so true. I mean, I definitely, on a, on a personal level, um, go through life very much glass half full, feel confident about everything, for a big lover of life. But I definitely, when negative thoughts creep in, suppress them. And they tend to come out at night time when I can't control them and I start having dreams, I sleepwalk. I do all oh, wow. the yeah. I do all these crazy, crazy things at night because I think it's their it's their yeah. only opportunity to come up, and um, I definitely see it as a sign of weakness. If I if someone asks me if I'm okay and I say no, I, I never say no. I'm not okay actually ever. I always go yeah, yeah, I'm great, great, you know. And actually, nine times out of ten, I am great and I feel great. But it's that tenth time where I just push it down. So it's it is so important to talk about it. And I, I'm not advocating that everyone just buries their head and looking at the cellar of their body and brings up all the mm. kind of misery and muck mm. and, you know, things that they're frightened of. And I actually agree that when you're out and about in the world that you shouldn't really be promiscuously honest about how you feel. I think it's you need a stiff upper lip, particularly if you're working, you need to be able to say, I'm fine. But, but, but actually, sorry, to that point, um, you know, that is part of the thing as well with social media is that a lot of people will put it out there and share too much, overshare, and then that can be more damaging. Yeah, so it's a wounding. really tricky line to tread, isn't it? But I think the other side of it, that with, say, your mum and your dad and your siblings and people closest to you, your husband, as long as you're honest with how you feel with them, and so if there is something bothering you, I mean, being optimistic, you're more likely to ha be happier and more successful. Mm. So you want to be someone who's optimistic. But it's just that if there are difficulties that are heading their way towards you, the more you ignore them, it is they shout louder and they get bigger. So it's being, being aware of what that is and then finding a way of voicing it and expressing it. And then, because we have a bias, our systems are negatively biased to look for the tiger so we're looking for danger primitively so if you keep ignoring the danger your body's saying to you no there's a tiger look at the fucking tiger watch out and so once you've looked at the tiger and you actually seen you've talked it through with your husband it's not really a tiger it's actually a pussycat and actually if you do this and that and the other you're fine then it won't need to keep haunting you mm. Does that make sense? It does. It, it definitely does. Um, what, what do you think about crying in front of the children? Because something that my husband always says to me is, you know, don't don't cry in front of the kids. You know, they, they don't let them see you distraught because it, it's not it's not healthy for them. But sometimes it's really hard not to. And um, I actually had an incident the other day <laughs> where a bit of a zombie. I haven't slept very well. And I crashed my system car. is in shock. Yeah, and you do feel a physical pain. I feel it's this physical wound in your chest. Stress in my chest. Yeah. It's like a dagger. Yeah. And I was and I was um, trauma means cut in Greek. There you go. All right. And grief is the word for um, robbed. Like you've been robbed. Wow. Well, I was I was I was went to get some food and I thought I'll I'll make some I'll make something yummy and it was Wilf was on half term, and I was coming back home I crashed the car I mean it wasn't a bad crash but I just I have got an automatic so when I take my foot off the brake I, I rolled into the car in front and uh, the guy got out of the car and I just lost my shit I mean I just sobbed uncontrollably shaking crying and um, the poor guy didn't know where to put himself he was like you know, don't, don't worry, it wasn't, there's no damage, just don't worry, you know. But I couldn't stop crying. Yeah. I mean, that was it, it was like my trigger, it was just, yeah. that was it, the floodgates open. Yeah. 
And then, of course, I'd really panicked about crying that much, like shaking with tears in front of Wilf because he's five and he looked really confused. What should I have done in that situation? A, you didn't have a choice. That you, you didn't have breaks at that point. Your whole system just went... Literally and metaphorically. Literally, <laughs> literally and metaphorically. Um, so my understanding is that aid children need as much truth as the adults around them because they half hear conversations, things are talked about, so they need to know the truth. But also if you role model to them that you burst into tears, you shake, you cry, and then you get back in the car, you drive home and you cook him supper, he learns by witnessing, which is much more than what you ever say to him, you've modelled, you cry, you feel incredibly sad, then you get on with your day and, you, and you're fine. And then he will learn to do that. So he will learn that he can cry and that he can be okay. So one of the metaphors for grieving children is like jumping in and out of puddles. That a child will jump in the puddle, be incredibly sad and distraught, and then literally three minutes later, go and hit their brother, steal their ice cream, roar with laughter, play football and be fine. And they jump in and out. And our job as parents isn't to stop them crying, but to support them, to let them do both. So they move in and out of this loss and restoration that I talk about. They can be really sad and then they can be really fine. And you model that. I guess, um, well, first of all, thank you, because I felt like crap afterwards. And I, I kept saying to him, can I have a hug? I thought, I thought in some way him comforting me would it would empower him as well. It would yeah, make him nice. feel like I, he can help heal mummy. He went, can we go home now, mummy? He was really confused. <laughs> yes. But also you can name what's going on. Mm. So you can say, I was really stupid and I felt bad that I hit the back of the car. But also I'm really sad about Caroline dying. Mm. And it just made me feel super sad about her. And it overtook me. Mm. But now I'll take you home and I'll make you spag ball. And uh, I, I tell you, it also made me think, I suddenly got into this weird sort of paranoid panic. I was like, but shit, what if it had been worse? And what if I'd hurt my kids? And, you know, yeah, what if I'd hurt his kids? And You're more you know. mortal right now. Yeah. You're that skin of blissful ignorance that protects us, that bad things don't happen to me and they don't happen to people I love, has been ripped right off you. So you feel much more exposed mm. to danger. I mean, over time, you'll get that trust in life back. But also to say that men and women tend to grieve differently. So you with your husband, you're doing what is very, very common, is that men tend to be restoration oriented. They tend to want to get on, move forward, go back to work, be okay, and not feel an awful lot. Women tend to be loss oriented, that they have a kind of Sherlock Holmes obsession with wanting to know every piece of the jigsaw, preoccupied with the person, looking at photos, searching for them, feeling a lot, crying. And as a couple, you need to help each other do a bit of both. So he can help you get on and do the dinner and be okay. And you can help him by forcing him, poor chap, to listen to this podcast, do some of the loss work. Yeah. And that's how you kind of calibrate between mm. the two. Thank you so much, Julia. There's one more thing I'm really sorry I no. want to talk about. Please do. Is that I think something that we, we instinctively do, and I think has happened with lots of public figures like Diana, um, is that how we heal in grief, as I've said a million times, is by allowing ourselves to feel the pain. But it's also finding a way that the love never dies, that the love you have for that person continues on forever. And um, that when you have touchstones to memory of that person, that supports you so you internalize them or if you have a faith you believe they're in heaven or whatever your faith is that the relationship although it is irrevocably changed that they're not present in your life they're present in your heart and that you can talk to them you remember them and they may influence you you may ask the person that's died what shall i do about this and actually you know them so well they would give you an answer and so having um, tangible, because grief's so invisible, having tangible touchstones to their memory, wearing something that reminds you of them, cooking their food if it's your mum, if your mum cooked, or your dad. Um, having a place in your phone where you go and have a look at their memory, talk, going for a walk with a friend and talking about them and then doing something comforting like having a kind of lunch afterwards. 
for a family if you have a box you know in the in the front entrance and you have a notepad and people pop in memories of the person and then every few weeks or whenever you choose you open the box around the kitchen table and you read memories so that you consciously remember so it's never about forgetting and moving on it's about remembering and holding them inside and having connections to feel your love for them and in your particular case i'm sure that caroline was so loved both privately by her family and her friends that they will and i hope the public find ways of remembering her too that they can kind of be at peace with so glad you added that bit thank you <laughs> thank you so much for your time really Absolutely really appreciate my it. pleasure thank you so yeah pretty heavy stuff there um and i and i hope that um that you're okay listening to that i hope it's helped you um as i mentioned it's it's been crazy the amount of strangers that have come up to me and mentioned Caroline and said how affected they've been by her death which you know is it's kind of comforting in a way but it's also distressing because it's just so upsetting that so many people are still reeling and probably will be for many months years to come so if you are struggling please do reach out to the Samaritans they're amazing people and their number is 116123. Julia has written down pretty much everything that um, we've discussed um, and more in her book, Grief Works. And um, she's got another one, another book coming out soon called This Too Will Pass. I mean, I don't know how she does what she does. But she does it with feeling and with love and kindness. And honestly, without her, the world would be a worse place, that's for sure. So thank you, Julia, for your time, because, um, yeah, I've no doubt that it will help people.